Um, This is a unique series, at least for us here at Cornerstone. We are teaching you old prayers from old people, so prayers of the saints. And um, yes, these are prayers written and prayed by other people, but what's amazing about every one of these prayers is they've been prayed thousands, but more like millions of times, which means that they mean something to people, and they've been helpful for people at different times in their life. And so whether it was this prayer of St. Patrick or prayer of St. Francis, or last week Aaron shared the serenity prayer and Jean shared the, the Shema, these are all prayers that help guide our thoughts when we can be stuck in prayer. And so they They can remind us of things. They can remind us of how God's in control, like the songs we just sang, and that's a good thing that happens during prayer. Or some of these prayers remind us of the joy that we get to experience because of loving union with God. And so these are helpful things. Um, And really, the word saints gets overused a lot of times in Christian circles, but it really means the heroes of the faith. And it's important for us to have people that have gone before us that we can look to, not perfect people, ordinary people who lived uh, unordinary lives because of what God has done in their life. And so um, we love getting to tell you about some of these people. And today I get to tell you about an amazing lady named Teresa of Avila. And uh, she's got a number of prayers. I've actually chosen one of her shortest prayers to teach from today. But um, I, I've shared many of her daily prayers with you in the prayer book. So you can see the text line on the screen. You get, the guys in the back can bring that up. But if you text that word to that line, you will get access to this week's prayer book. And I've included six of her daily prayers. Um, They're fantastic. A little bit about Teresa of Avila. She's a 16th century Catholic uh, Spanish Carmelite nun. Uh, She also has the word cloistered nun in there. Most of you don't know what any of that means. It's okay, but cloistered just means they stayed inside the convent. So there wasn't a lot of interaction with the outside world. And um, so it, it makes it remarkable that she is such a famous person today. And it really is because of her teaching on prayer that you'll see in a moment, but also the things that she wrote and she shared her thoughts and, and wrote them down so it would last and, and be shared with people like us. She's an incredible author and some of her books are some of the all-time classics within Christianity. Um, one of my favorite things that she ever said about prayer is this short quote. She said, prayer is being on terms of friendship with God Frequently conversing in secret. And I hope we understand, and I think we can't say it too much, that as people, we have not progressed past prayer. We live in an anxious world, don't we? Like, just the outside world is so anxious. Um, Been reading a lot of things about just how the the average person deals with more anxiety today than than humans at any other point in history. And some of that's due to the the increased... um, connection and complexity that comes with all the information that we have. And so we're all dealing with just trying to stay, stay calm, as, as calm as we can. And then there are those that have the real struggle of anxiety and fear, and it can overtake them. And it's this just personal burden and battle that people deal with on a daily basis. Now, there are a lot of ways that we can deal with our anxiety and stay healthy as people, or when we, when we begin to move towards that way to return back to a place of peace and joy. But prayer is one of those things that we can't replace. Prayer is meant to join us to God, the God that is close to us and with us. And as we experience God and his voice and his love, we don't hear judgment, we don't hear the angry boss, which is a lot of times people have that notion of God because of their past. It's not an angry parent. He's a loving father, he's a close friend, and he brings peace and he brings joy and he brings wisdom. And the way he brings conviction is a way that we can actually hear it and move past it and understand that God has something to say to help us. And so prayer is that place, that friendship language that can actually make a huge difference in our life in a number of areas, but particularly, I want you to see this as we go through the series, 
as we struggle with our anxieties and our fears. And you know, the world's not gonna get more peaceful. It's not gonna get less complicated. In fact, we're gonna talk about a complicated issue here in a moment. But we need that loving union. We need joined to God so that we can experience his peace and his joy. All right, let me read you a couple of the prayers that I've included in the prayer book uh, from Teresa of Avila. So this is the one that's most famous. Many of you have maybe heard this attached to other daily prayers. This is called, let nothing disturb thee. She says, let nothing disturb you. Let nothing frighten you. All things are passing. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Nothing is wanting to him who possesses God. God alone suffices. So we sang about that theme, right? Let nothing disturb you, frighten you. God never changes. God alone suffices. It's just a reminder that God sustains life, that, that we can, you know, in the midst of a storm, God is steady. This was a prayer she prayed on a daily basis. This prayer, by the way, is referred to as the Teresa bookmark prayer because she had it handwritten when, when she died. People went into her room and they saw handwritten on a bookmark inside of her prayer book, this prayer. So it's a prayer that she prayed every day to remind herself that God is in control. Now, I'm not gonna read you all of this next prayer. This next prayer is called Growing Older. How many of you often pray about getting older? You know, compared to some of you, you might think I'm young. My son was up here singing today. He leaves for college in a week, and that makes me feel very old to say goodbye to our oldest. But here's a prayer that she wrote as she began to age and would pray on a daily basis. Here's a few words from that. Lord, you know me better than I know myself, that I am growing older and will someday be old. Keep me from the fatal habit of thinking I must say something on every subject on every occasion. Isn't that a good prayer? How about this? Release me from the cravings to straighten out everybody's affairs. That's a good prayer. Make me thoughtful, but not moody, helpful, but not bossy. I mean, she prayed that every day. I wonder if she laughed at herself as she prayed. Here's the best line from that prayer. Keep me reasonably sweet, for a sour old person is one of the crowning works of the devil. <laughs> That's great. Keep me reasonably sweet. Not too sweet. That might not be possible, but just nice enough. All right, our prayer today, it's one of her shortest ones. It's called, Lord, you are closer, and you'll see this one on the screen. This is how it goes. Lord, you are closer to me than my own breath, nearer to me than my hands and my feet. Lord, you are closer to me than my own breath, nearer to me than my own hands and feet. When I pray this or hear this prayer, I'm reminded of one of my favorite psalms about union with God or prayer. It comes from Psalm 16:8. I often share this with us here at Cornerstone, but I love how it makes us think about prayer. This is how it goes. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. The ESV version says, I have set the Lord always before me. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So prayer is meant to be one of those things that always keeps God in front of us. Now, God is always with us, like she describes, he is closer, but we need an awareness of him. And prayer is one of those things, and it's a theme we mention here over and over again here at Cornerstone. Try to notice God through the day. Keep the Lord always before you. Now, how is it that she could say something like this? Or David in the Psalms could describe just setting God in before him that he could be so close. See, both 
David and Teresa understand that there is such a thing as union with God, that God's proximity to us is very close, so close that we can, he's accessible and he's vulnerable and in such a way that we can be accessible and vulnerable and attentive to him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 describes the theology behind this. So Paul says this, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? That's why God is so close. <clears throat> That's why he's closer than our hands and our feet, because he dwells inside. He is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So our bodies become this sacred place where God meets us in what we call the soul, but it's housed in the body. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? So the temple of God they're referring to here is you and me. If we've been joined to Jesus, you are now the temple, which is a remarkable thing to think about. If we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. So now the psalmist and Paul and Teresa all understand something that, that God dwells within us. He dwells within the soul and the soul is somehow the center of who we are as people. Um, uh, let me just say this about the soul. It's sacred for a few reasons. First of all, it's sacred because it's the home for God in this world today. God dwells there. The soul in you. But your soul is also sacred, as we'll see here in Genesis in a moment, that that is where God has placed his image inside of you, which is the truest thing about each one of us. So a lot of times in Christian circles, we like to start when we define people by saying they're sinners, they're evil, they make mistakes. That is not the first thing about you. It's not the truest thing about you. When God looks at us, he looks through the tarnished image and he sees gold. The image of God inside of us. Well, where is that at? That's in the soul. The soul is sacred because God meets with the truest part of you there. I mean, it's amazing. In a similar way that God dwelled with Adam and Eve and walked with them in the garden, and then he dwelled inside a particular temple that was made just a certain, a certain way. In 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 6, Solomon is dedicating the temple. We're going to use this, this passage in a few weeks as we dedicate our new building but he's saying, you know, God's gonna dwell in this place, but it doesn't make sense because God is so big, it's a, it's a wonder to think about. But who is able to build a temple for him since the heavens and even the highest heavens cannot contain him? So the thought that a God like that can dwell inside of you in that sacred place called the soul is a wonder. And, you know, it's one of those things, it's a mystery. We'll discover that our entire lives. I think that's one of those things when we see Jesus face to face someday, we will ask him, help me understand. And he will. Now, the fact that we have a soul makes us different from the rest of creation. And there is potential and possibility for us to know God and to love him and to be loved by him. All of those things are there. But the soul also allows for other things to happen. And so let me mention them by answering an objection that some people may have. So there are many people in the world today, and, and I, I don't blame them. I don't condemn, the, condemn them for this view. They have a very different worldview. But there are those that think all there is to us is, is what we can measure and what we can see. So how can you prove that there's a soul? How can you prove that you love someone? How can you prove that you have courage? Like how can you prove these, these inner virtues and values and hidden things? Well, usually what we can do is we can see the effects of those things later on in life. We can see how they influence certain parts uh, of the world. Productive work's getting done in the back. <laughs> Dan's about to go shut him up. Oh, this place. 
Lord, make me an instrument of peace. (laughs) All right, but there are those that say, how do you know there's a soul? There is no soul, okay? This is what I would say to that person respectfully. If there is no soul, how is it that we can have values and we can have a strong desire for, for justice? Where does that come from? Is it just instinct? How is it that we can be creative and notice beauty? How is it that we can be inspired and find courage in the midst of great fear? How is it that we can have passion? How is it that you can fall in love? How is it that you can feel a deep attachment to your family? How is it that you can worship? How is it that you can notice God's presence when you pray? How are those things possible apart from something that God has placed inside called the soul? See, I think we all understand that there's more to a person than just our mind and our body. The soul is the hub of all of those things. Our intellect, our spirit, what some people describe. Our emotions, our body, our feelings, our desires. It's the core of who you are. And there in the core lies this beautiful image of God. It's amazing. And there at the core dwells his temple, which is also amazing. Genesis 127 is one of those verses every Christian should know very, very well because this is where you form and begin to form your identity and your sense of value, which by the way, we need to know that every other person that we see has the same identity and value. Genesis 127, so God created mankind, man and woman in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So this speaks to the importance of gender in God's creation, but here God is placing his image inside of us. It's the center of who you are. Teresa's teaching often emphasized that God dwells within the soul, therefore it is sacred. Prayer is a descent into that place. Knowing this leaves us uh, knowing that God is imminent. He is with us. He dwells within in the innermost mansions of the human soul. And then this is what she said. All harm comes from, from when we fail to realize that this is true about us or other people. Luke 17, 21 reminds us the kingdom of God is within you. It's not just an outside thing. This is one of those amazing mysteries that as the spirit begins to work in your life and we notice his presence, God begins to help us maybe not understand it so much that we can explain it, but we we experience God's presence with us. And we say, you know, it's hard to explain, but it's absolutely true. And I know a lot of you have had experiences with God and you're like, it's hard to explain, but something happened to me. Something happened to your soul. So this is stunning This is incredible value to all people. C.S. Lewis said this, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. So in other words, he's like, we think too much of ourselves. But it is hardly possible for him to think too little or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it And the backs of the proud will be broken. Then he goes on to say this in summary. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Keep reading. He said, if you could see what God sees, I mean, we'd be tempted to fall down and worship, which we certainly don't want to worship each other. But his point is the gold, the treasure on the inside is so sacred and so great. Now, I want to take you a little deeper into some of her teaching, and so I'm going to do something we haven't done quite in this, this series yet. I'm going to give you some quotes from one of her books about prayer. 
that describes how this prayer could be true, that God is so close, how she describes, how she describes the soul. And so uh, what she's most famous for is her third book, which is called The Interior Castle. And in the book, she uses the, the image of a palace or a beautiful castle made out of diamond to be a metaphor for your soul. So this is what's helpful. When we're trying to think about these mysterious things, metaphors can help us imagine what it might be like. And so she used the metaphor of a castle for this. And prayer is descending into that castle. And so this is some of the things she said. She said, I thought of the soul as resembling a castle formed of a single diamond or of a very transparent crystal and containing many rooms, just as in heaven there are many mansions. If we reflect sisters, so she wrote this for her friends, her sisters in, in the convent, we shall see that the soul of the just man is but a paradise in which God tells us he takes his delight. What do you imagine must that dwelling be in which a king so mighty, so wise, and so pure, containing in himself all good, can delight to rest? Nothing can be compared to the great beauty and capabilities of a soul. However keen our intellects may be, they are unable to comprehend them as to comprehend God. For as he has told us, he created us in his own image and his own likeness. So the castle becomes a picture. She goes on to say, we need not tire ourselves by trying to realize all the beauty of this castle, although being his creature, there is all the difference between the soul and God, and there is, there is between the creature and the creator. The fact that it is made in God's image teaches how great are its dignity and loveliness. It is no small misfortune and disgrace that through our own fault, we neither understand our nature or our origin. <clears throat> So use the imagery of that beautiful castle. It's not a cold, intimidating castle that you would think of in medieval times. It's a castle made out of pure crystal and at the center is the home where God dwells. In the castle, in her writing, she um, uses the, the metaphor of different mansions or different rooms because there's different depths at which we can learn to pray. And so, um, you know, the, the first mansion is just how, is, is, a, is a prayer that we learn when we're kids. We ask God for things. We love God through prayer. We tell him we love him. We ask him to lead us. We ask God to provide. That is a special part of prayer. But then as we get deeper into prayer and we ascend into this castle, as she would describe, uh, prayer begins to form us and we begin to change as people. And God begins to mess with our motives and our desires and our loves. And then that begins to change our outward appearance and our actions. But eventually, the whole point of prayer is to go to this deeper place where we experience loving union with God, where it's not just about an exchange between things, it's not just about words, but we actually experience his presence. That's why prayer is often described more, it's not just a conversation, it's union and experience with God. Lastly, in the seventh mansion of prayer, if you ever get to it and want to read it, that last experience of prayer are powerful encounters with God. And I, I don't know all your stories, but I know many of your stories. And many of you have had powerful encounters with God. He took you to that sacred place where the sacred part of you, the image of God, interacted with God that dwells in the sacred place called the soul. That's theologically how we describe these encounters with God. She says this, let us imagine, as I said, that there are many rooms in this castle, of which some are above, some below, others on the side and in the center. And in the very midst of them all is the principal chamber in which God and the soul hold their most secret intercourse. It's that private place. 
And so use that imagery now as we pray that short prayer again. There is a castle inside. Lord, you are closer to me than my own breath, nearer to me than my hands and my feet. So this is just an amazing reminder of God's proximity, the gift of prayer, what it is that we're doing when we pray. Uh, I I love telling the story. It's been a while. But um, the actor Andrew Garfield, many of you know him as Spider-Man, when filming a movie called Silence, he wanted to learn how to be a Jesuit because he was going to play a Jesuit in the movie. And Jesuits are a certain type of Catholic priest, a certain order. But one of the things that's really unique about the Jesuits is they have deep, deep practices of prayer that have been very helpful for me personally. And so uh, it got my attention when I saw this. And so in trying to learn to be a Jesuit, he went to another Jesuit priest and said, teach me to be a Jesuit. And the priest said, well, you just need to learn how to pray in certain ways. And so things like Lectio Divina that we're going to end with today and the examine, just a bunch of really neat prayers or ways of praying um, and so he's, Andrew started praying. Well, he was an atheist at the time. Well, he started praying, and then he discovered that someone was listening. Like an inner voice on the inside, the still small voice on the inside. And he realized that these prayers just don't go out into the universe. It's not like God is far away, but they're close. And he began to hear someone. It was amazing. To hear someone else describe it like, well, I didn't know prayer actually works. So it's this amazing gift. But as you pray, I want you to just be reminded of two of her, her, this emphasis of the beauty of the soul. That is in you. And it's beautiful for two reasons. It's a place that God dwells. It's as beautiful as the temple Solomon built. More beautiful, you you could say. And it's also the place where the truest you has been birthed. That is where it is sits inside. Now saying that, I want to take the opportunity with that emphasis about the, the, the body and the soul to talk about a subject that many people are talking about today in, in our country, and it's the subject of abortion. All right, so as is the case whenever I talk about these controversial things, I'm going to preface it with about 20 statements, okay? So just get ready. I hope you don't assume that everyone here thinks the same. And I hope you don't assume that I don't get emails from everyone telling me how they think. So that's why we spend some time trying to do this thoughtfully, okay? Um, Let's start with this, this preface. Like I said, there are many different opinions here at Cornerstone, many different convictions, many different passions from the people sitting in this room. There are many people in this room that have experienced abortion themselves or in their family, There are women who live with regret because of that. There are some women that live with no regret. There are some men associated with um, abortion that live with regret and some that do not. There are real divisions of opinion here. There are different opinions about how we solve this problem politically. We have other women here in our church that just feel a, a heavy degree of judgment that maybe they put on themselves because of shame, because of past choices. There are women that feel judged by other people and men as well. That's not a good environment. Like shame and judgment and regret's not a good environment, especially with the gospel, right? The gospel is good news. It's God making all things new. It's God forgiving, giving grace. Here's a few other things I think are helpful when abortion is talked about in a church. I've heard people say religion isn't politics and they would be right. 
When I say religion, what I mean by that for us is that faith in Jesus, Christianity is not politics. There should be a separation, especially in a free society of some of those things. By the way, that also means with a plurality of ideas and different faiths in our country, we should all be eager to defend those who are being silenced. Because when anyone is silenced, it hurts the whole free society. And for many years, the Christians, Christians didn't do that. But there are other people that need to remember religion isn't politics. The notions that we're going back to some old American Christian theocracy like that ever existed, they just historically is not true. That's not going to happen. But also, abortion is not exclusively a political issue. It is a moral issue for people on both sides. And so to say that your faith should not inform your values and your morals is just like, that's just not, no one's gonna embrace that. Especially if you find your morals and your values from your faith. So your faith becomes the container in which you sort through your politics and these social issues. We can't separate the influence of our love for God and God's love for us and the scriptures from the way we think the world should be. And there are a lot of people that don't understand this. They think that our personal faith should be kept private and have no place in the public sphere. But that is not the case, and it's not going to happen. We also need to know that people get their morals and convictions from different places. You can't force it upon people. We simply, if you have, if you have something that you believe to be more true, good, and beautiful, we use persuasion and letting that be lived out in life to be a way that can change people's mind, right? So we don't beat them up. We don't shame them. These are all helpful things. There are other issues that are at stake right now. The abortion issue in our country is complicated because you think about things like the poor. Um, I've had several people send me emails or share with me. My, my primary concern with what's happened regarding abortion is that it's going to affect the poor, and I would agree with them. The poor in our community, poor around the country, they are the least resourced, uh, least educated. Often they're disconnected from, from um, health resources. And so... That needs addressed. Education and contraception, I think all of these things are reasonable things for Christians to consider. Of course, I think it's also reasonable to ask people to be responsible with their sex lives. The fact that you could even ask that is like frowned upon nowadays. So all of these things are complications, but I would say this about the poor. The reason the poor in the scriptures get our preference is because they're affected by every social, political, and economic issue. Who's affected the most by inflation? The poor. How about bad policing? The poor. Gun violence? The poor. They're the most affected on all of these things. And so this is yet another reminder that as Christians, we're called to care for them and work towards justice and different solutions. There's other things to consider that are important to many of you, like women's rights. And the historic, you know, exploitation of women. This is an important thing that, that I know a lot of women want to make sure everyone, including other women and men, because it's not just a man versus woman issue, because men and women disagree, but women and women disagree. But we consider these things. My friend Gil uh, called me up this week, and he said, you know, I, Gil's very strong pro-choice, I mean pro-life, I'm sorry, pro-life. He's got a daughter-in-law he loves very much. She's pro-choice. And he said, I just want to hear from her. I'm tired of this, everyone just being so angry and yelling back. And so they had a very civil exchange where they shared their values. 
He said, what he called me for is he wanted to share this. He said, you know, it was amazing at the end of the conversation as we found tremendous unity saying, it's a good thing if there's less abortions in America. And the fact is, there has been less abortions in America for many decades now, but we can work towards that. And so even if you disagree with someone about abortion, as Christians, we can work with people to, 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 um, to prevent them. And so there is a path of unity for us. Personally, Elise and I, knowing now that the authority and the power has now been given back to people like us, because each state now has the authority to choose whether or not abortion is, is allowed or at what degree it's going to be used. Elise and I are taking very serious thinking about how it's meant to be used to save a woman's life, but what prohibitions and limits are necessary. And I hope you are too. That's one reason I want to share it. I want, I want us to be equipped theologically because now we get to be the decision makers in some regard. Now saying all that, those are things are all complicated. Uh, an unwanted pregnancy, like Mary in the Bible, is a complicated issue. We have people here that want to start homes for single moms. That would be amazing. Support for these families that need it, childcare. Like these, these are things that now need to get our attention. Adoption and foster care, which has always been one of the hallmarks of Christian faith, probably needs to become even more important. And I'm so pleased that in a church like ours, our size, we have so many adoptive and foster families. So that needs to be celebrated, promoted, endorsed, needs to increase. All of those things. So, you know, preventing unwanted pregnancy can be a complicated issue. An unplanned pregnancy can be a complicated issue. A family trying to take care of a baby can be a complicated issue. Okay? Now, saying all that, we also need to learn to think theologically. So you can think like a citizen, and you can think through uh, like political affiliation, but as Christians, we're called also to think theologically, and that simply means to, theology is just the study of God or, or God's truth, and you know, we have to be humble when we come into theology and use that word to even think that we can, you know, we can never master God or put him in a box. He is a mystery, but God has gone out of his way to reveal himself to us and his truth. So Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God, and the scriptures are an incredible gift that God has given us to understand how life should be. Now this helps us because underneath the debate about abortion in our country is something many people are referring to as the personhood theory. You don't need to call it that, but you'll see in a moment why, why it matters. But this is the title that's been given by people on both sides, and it's the essence of the debate today. The personhood theory essentially says that we can separate human life from personhood, that the two are not the same. Personhood would be the part of a person where their dignity and their rights are held. Um, these would be a person, the personhood would also describe what we have described earlier as the soul. So the personhood theory essentially says that you can separate the body from the soul or you can separate human life from personhood. And to be quite frank, if I didn't have an understanding that God is real and that God hasn't revealed himself to me, I could easily believe this. Personally, I understand why many people come to this conclusion. And so there is this discussion, where does personhood start? Because medically, we can now agree on that life starts before the baby enters into the world that is human life. But the justification for abortion today often hinges on this personhood theory, they're not yet a person. 
And so there are some people that believe that because all the ingredients of life are there at conception, there you have a person. There are others that use the six-week mark when we can measure the heartbeat. There are others that use the 12 to 15 week where um, an unborn baby can begin to feel pain as the place where personhood starts. There are others that use the 22 week when, you know, somewhere in the fourth month, uh, a baby is viable to live outside the womb. That is the time of personhood. And still other people use actual birth as that time when an unborn baby or a born baby becomes a person. And unfortunately, in some regards, it's even after birth. So the personhood theory, according to Nancy Piercy, she describes it, is to be biologically human is a scientific fact. This is how she describes it. To be biologically human is a scientific fact, but to be a person is an ethical concept defined by what we value. So to say that not everyone is using values or morals or the conversation of the soul, the core of a person, is just not true. This is the essence of the debate. When does personhood begin. So as a citizen in the kingdom of God, we seek to understand what the scriptures have to say. And even though abortion can be a complicated issue, preventing it and you know, caring for unwanted pregnancies afterwards, the scriptures are very clear and it is not complicated the way an unborn baby is talked about. And I want to read you a few of these scriptures. Tell me that the body and the soul are being separated in the way that life is described, Okay. And tell me that personhood and human life are separated in the way the scriptures describe them. And I've just picked a few. There's many more. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Job chapter 31. Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form both of us within our mothers? From birth, this is Psalm 22, from birth I was cast on you from my mother's womb, you have been my God. So something is being exchanged with the soul, the nature, the, the godly nature inside that, the unborn baby in God. Psalm 139, verse 13 through 16. For you created me in my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, wonderful and I know them full well. Which, by the way, that's true of you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So it's because of the overwhelming message within the scriptures that you can't separate body and soul. By the way, the only time that the body and the soul are separated is when someone dies but it's only temporary. If you read the end of the story, we're given resurrected bodies that are joined with our soul. Someday in heaven, you will walk, you will take hikes, you will swim in the ocean, you will have a body, there'll be a world, but it'll be different. Nancy Piercy goes on to say, in a Christian worldview, everyone who is human is also a person and the two cannot be separated. The view avoids the radical devaluation of the human life. From its earliest stages, the body participates in the human teleos, which simply means the telling of God. One of the the reasons God gives us his image is so that we might show it off in the world so that others may see it. So that's the teleos. And thus shares in the purpose and dignity of the human person. 
And so there are complicated parts of the discussion and then there are other parts. And I think what the world needs today is we need thoughtful Christians who can engage with people who think perhaps differently than us, even other Christians who think differently than you. I'm not gonna convince everyone. It's okay, by the way, if you disagree with your pastor on this issue. But I would simply ask you to consider God's word of what it says about life. Can you separate personhood from human life, the soul from the body? Because if you can't, that is a sacred thing that is meant to be honored and given full potential of life. Let me mention a few places in history where personhood has been separated from human life, okay? Or you could say the soul from the, from the body. So a, a big portion of the entire Old Testament, the Jewish narrative is this idea that you have, Christ, or you have Jews living as slaves in Egypt, an entire nation. And how could that be? Well, they're, they're certainly human lives. They're strong, they're able to work, there's some utility to them, but the reason they're able to be treated as slaves and that was justified is because their personhood, their dignity has been separated. It makes it much easier to think of them that way. You get to the New Testament in the Roman world. So depending what what studies you look at, um, some people think up to a third of the Roman world lived as slaves. To be conservative, you can say 20% of the Roman world lived as slaves. Well, how could that be? Well, they, they are not people. It's a human life, but they are not yet persons. And you can, this is a theme in the New Testament. So Onesimus is one of the slaves that's mentioned in some of the New Testament writings. And Paul advocates for Onesimus' freedom. He's a person, set him free. One of my favorite places, a slave is mentioned, and it's kind of hidden. You wouldn't know it's there is in Romans chapter 16. And if you've not heard one of our messages on Romans 16, you should listen, because about, it's so inclusive about the kind of family that God is building. And so in Romans 16, Paul is finishing up his letter, and he's greeting all of these different people, old people, young people, Greeks, educated, um, non-Greeks, Jews, all of these different people, Paul is greeting them. And then get to the very end of chapter 16, and it says this strange line. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. And so Paul is dictating the letter, and he has a friend of his who's a part of this early church named Tertius that's dictating the letter. Now, here's what's significant about Tertius. That is his name, but it's not really a name. It tells us, Tertius simply in that language means three. This was often often the custom. Uh, When a child was born into a family that was already slaves, they were not given names because they were not people. They were given numbers. So his name is three. Now think of the dignity. He's there with Paul and these other leaders of the church and they are sending the letter and Paul looks to Tertius in the midst of this whole thing and says, you greet him too, Tertius, because you're a person. It's amazing. He goes on, verse 23, Gaius, who is lucky enough to have a name, whose hospitality I and the whole church enjoy since his greetings as well. Erastus, who's lucky enough to have a name, he greets him too. The city's director of public works and your brother, look what it says, and your brother Cordus. Maybe this is Tertius' brother. Cordus means four. So you have another slave or former slave who wasn't given the dignity of a name. They send their greetings. The church has been at its best when we see personhood joined with human life. Unfortunately, it's not always been the case. We all know about European slavery, European Christians using the Bible to justify slavery. What's happening there? Well, here again, you have human life being separated from personhood. 
In fact, in the United States, a law called the Three-Fifths Compromise was passed. Trying to measure the population of the southern states, you know, um, an African slave couldn't be considered as a whole person. They were considered three-fifths of a person. How horrible, right? Glad those things have been changed. But racism is an expression of someone uh, separating the personhood from human life. Sexism, all of these things play out. As Christians, we're, thought, we're, meant, we're called to be thoughtful citizens of our country, to think through how certain things are complicated, how we work for these things. By the way, it's possible for us to disagree politically about how to handle these things, but I would encourage you, if you're not yet convinced that personhood should be joined with human life, to spend more time in the scriptures and praying. Because it is one of the gifts that we get to offer the world that all people matter. Oh, let's take a deep breath. I need some water. These are hard things to talk about, right? Especially with people who are passionate. I already feel my blood pressure go up. I can, your anxiety, I can just feel it and see it. It's about time to pray to take care of that. We'll pray here in a moment, handle our anxiety. Hey, although this is a tough issue here at Cornerstone, we don't want to avoid the tough things. We want to talk about the things that matter. And this certainly matters. It matters to us in our lives. It's happening in our world. And so we just want to respectfully be able to talk about it. And so if you have questions, you're welcome. You know, I'm used to it. Come on up. Find any of our staff. We'd love to talk and pray through things. Um, and again, this is a place where there are many different opinions. You know, this is not groupthink. But we do believe there's enough unity around Jesus and the words of Jesus to pull us together and even change our minds at times. And his kingdom is a great big project that we can all be a part of. In the midst of our differences, we can say yes to that and find unity. So just remind us of that as I close. All right, worship team, come on up. Um, I want to just end by giving us a moment to just be in God's presence through prayer. And so I just invite you to bow your head. And I'm just going to read a couple times again, Psalm chapter 16, verse 8. And as I do this, I just want you to meditate on the words. Perhaps God will give you a word or a phrase that will be just for you. Perhaps he'll give you an emotion or a response. But I don't want to be lost in just the application of the sacredness of a person, the discussion about abortion, how close God is and what a gift prayer is. And so I want to return to that as we end. And so with your eyes bowed, and just the quietness of prayer, you can just start by saying to the Holy Spirit that you're listening And then ask God to speak to you as I read this verse a couple times. I have set the Lord always before me. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Father, we're listening. Give us a feeling, an emotion, an action, a word. I have set the Lord always before me. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Father, we we thank you that we can talk about important things. We thank you that just the, the highlight of the gift of prayer, we thank you for how you see us. Thank you that when you look at every person here, you see treasure, you see gold. 
there is a core to them, the soul of who they are. We thank you that you desire to meet with us there, that we might experience you in ways that change our lives, that heal those things that are broken, that restore our image of ourselves and our identity, our value. I pray and bless my friends that we would use those moments in prayer to allow you to do those things. We worship you now, Father, and thanks that we can be together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand together.